Good morning. Our scripture today comes from Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 to 10, and you can turn there now. We'll get to those verses in just a second. The story goes, there once was a man who put out a sign in his front yard, puppies for sale, $25. A little boy came walking by and he saw the sign and he went up to the man and with a sad face he said, I don't have $25. I only have $2 and a couple of nickels, but could I please at least see the puppies? And the man said, of course. And so he brought him over to the puppies and the little boy watched the little puppies on the bottom of that empty kid's pool, um, playing and jostling with one another. The boy saw one puppy on the corner of the pool. He wasn't playing and jostling. She was there by herself. And the boy looked at that little puppy and he turned to the man and he said, what's wrong with her? The man said, she can't walk right and she can't play with the other puppies. Uh, The little boy thought for just a moment. He frowned and then he smiled and he said, I know that I don't have the money here today, but could I give you all of my money right now and I'll make payments? I want to buy that puppy in the corner. The man said, but son, that that dog will never walk right for the rest of its life. Never run. And the boy smiled and he said, that's okay. And he pulled up his his little jeans and he showed the man a heavy brace that was holding his legs so that he could walk. The man went over to the puppy and he picked up the puppy and he brought it over to the boy and he said, don't give me your money, you can have her. I think you two will make best friends. For the first time in that boy's life, he had a friend that he could identify with, that could keep up with him. And for the rest of his life with that dog, he would enjoy a friendship unlike any other. And so with that little dog that couldn't play and jostle with the rest, he would have a friend that picked him, that chose him, that was just like her. Would you believe that God gave you the very best friend when he made his son who was perfect and holy and righteous, lame with the condition of humanity? So that you can finally have a friend that you can say, that's my best friend. (laughs) He can keep up with me. He can run with me. Because he's gone through exactly what I've gone through. That's the idea that the writer of the Hebrews is talking about all throughout his book, but especially in chapter 5, what we're looking at today, starting at verse 1. He talks about how the high priest, now that's a term we're going to have to get into and explain a little bit, but the high priest really, his job was to empathize, to sympathize, to take on the human condition and represent the people to God. And this is what he says, every high priest is selected from among the people and is appointed to represent the people in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He is able to deal gently with those who are ignorant and are going astray since he himself is subject to weakness. This is why he had to offer sacrifices for his own sins, as well as for the sins of the people. And no one takes this honor on himself, but he receives it when called by God, just as Aaron was. And Aaron was the first high priest that God chose in the Jewish race. 
Okay, let's unpack that a little bit. The role of a high priest, um, well, first of all, let's talk about this. The whole book of Hebrews is Jesus is greater. Jesus is the greater He's greater than the angels, chapter 1. He's greater than the angels because whereas the angels serve God, Jesus is the Son of God, chapter 1. Chapter 3, Jesus is greater than Moses because although Moses was, um, he was a servant of God, Jesus is the Son of God. Whereas uh, chapter 4 talks about Joshua. Joshua ushered the people in and did a conquest of a land, a sliver of land in the Fertile Crescent many years ago. Jesus is the greater Joshua because Jesus ushers in eternity and eternal peace and love for you. And then you get to chapter 5, and you get talking about Aaron and the priesthood. And Jesus is the greater priest, the greater high priest, because although all of these priests make sacrifices for the people and identify with them, um, Jesus made the final sacrifice on the cross. The sacrifice to end all sacrifices. And what we learn about the, I'm going to talk about before Jesus in in the Old Testament, and we're going to talk about this a little bit today so that we can understand how he is our best friend, that God gave us pictures in the Old Testament, and one of those pictures in a very real way that he gave forgiveness to the people was through the priesthood. Uh, A high priest was three things, you'll note from these verses. Number one, they receive the office from God. It says that they are selected from among the people, uh, they're appointed, and no one takes this honor on himself. That means nobody aspires to it, but actually God chooses. And this is the way that God chose. He chose out of the 12 tribes, he chose, well, he chose Aaron, and he chose Aaron's tribe, the Levites, who would be representatives of the people. They wouldn't get a sliver of land themselves, but they would live among the people when they, when they conquested the land. And these priests would represent the people. They were, they were chosen by God, and they would represent the people. And how did they represent the people? They did sacrifices. They did sacrifices for sins, but they had to do it for their own sins, too, because they were sinful. So there was a long series of sacrifices throughout the year, but especially on the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement was like maybe what you're doing right now, spring cleaning. It was a spring cleaning for the soul. Uh, it was a festival that happened in the fall, so it was a fall cleaning, and it was happened on the day called Yom Kippur, Kippur where, where the priests would, and, and the people would come together and there would be a, a slaughter of animals and, and blood would be spilt for the priests and for the people. And in procession, the high priest, the one chosen, would go into the whole, most holy place and sprinkle that blood onto the place called the mercy seat, the place where God resided. And when that happened, the blood was spilt and it was sprinkled on the mercy seat. There would be forgiveness for the priest, the priesthood. And for the people. Now this would happen once a year, and it would happen so that everybody's sins would be forgiven, and that, that word at atonement, at, you would be made at one with God, literally through the forgiveness of sins and the shedding of this blood. And so the high priest had to be chosen by God. The high priest had to represent the people in a very meaningful way because he would bring the forgiveness of sins through his work uh, by the sacrifice, and he would also relate to the people. Did you catch that? That he himself deals gently with people and that he himself is subject to weakness. And that was a key part in God's picture of the priest and the priesthood because he wanted the priest to represent the people. He wanted the, the priest to say, I can identify with you because I myself need the forgiveness of sins. I myself have 
the condition of the human limp, and I need, I need grace too. Now, that's the way that God chose the priests in the, in the Old Testament. And you remember the theme of the book of Hebrews is Jesus is the greater what? Priest. He's the greater high priest. And that's what we get to next. This is how God chose his son. Uh, from the beginning of time, he chose him. In verse 5, it says, in the same way, Christ, notice right here he uses the word Christ, which means chosen one. Later, he's going to use Jesus when he talks specifically about um, Jesus, his given name on earth. The chosen one did not take on himself the glory of becoming a high priest, but God said to him, You are my son. Today I have become your father. And he says in another place, You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Now, if you haven't heard that name, Melchizedek, we're going to unpack that in a little bit in just a moment because it's the key that unlocks our understanding of how Jesus is our great high priest. But first, look at the comparison. Just like the Old Testament, God chose he chose, um, and Jesus received the call as a high priest. He didn't aspire to it. That's why Psalm 2-7 is there. Uh, it shows this great love between a father and a son. Uh, so you can imagine the father in heaven. He, is, he loves his son so much. His son is the apple of his eye. It's like a blue-collar dad that watches his son, the first one in the family to graduate college, walk the stage. He is so proud to watch him walk the stage. He is so proud that he just is his son. And every day he wakes up and he says, I'm so happy that you are my son. I'm so happy that we have this relationship. And there's this love and there's this trust between father and son. And the son thinks the same of the father. Wow, I love you, dad. And, and, and that's really the, the reason why the son could receive and not aspire. We aspire for things, and I'm not saying it's bad, because I do it too, and it's not sinful, but we aspire for what? A lot of questions people ask me and my wife recently are, how many babies are you going to have? We aspire, because we ask that question to each other as, as families and parents. And we ask the question, um, what school do you want to go to? What career do you want to have? And you can choose those things. And God gives us that blessing that we can choose. When do you want to retire? When can I retire? Right? But in heaven, Jesus didn't aspire his question was so anti-human. <laughs> he said, God, it's not what I want, me-centric. God, what do you want from me? Because we have this rich relationship from the beginning of time. And the Father says, I choose you to be a high priest. And I choose you to be a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. So the son says, okay, I'm going to do this work, and I'm going to learn what this means, that God wants me, my father wants me to be a priest in the order of Melchizedek. What did that look like? That's what the next verses are about. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Son though he was, he learned obedience from what he suffered, and... Once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him and was designated by God to be a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Okay, now we've heard his name twice, and you're wondering to yourself, who is this guy, Melchizedek? And I need to tell you about Melchizedek, because if I don't, I wouldn't be doing my job as a pastor. Um, Melchizedek is mentioned maybe nine or ten times throughout all of Scripture, and only two times is he mentioned in the Old Testament where he actually appeared physically. In Genesis chapter 14, Abraham, 
has um, gone into a battle against these uh, gangsters from Sodom who have taken over Lot, his nephew, and have, um, are pursuing him. And, and so Abraham goes out and he defeats uh, these kings from Sodom and the surrounding area. And after he defeats them and he keeps, and he keeps his nephew Lot safe, he, 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 he gives all glory to God and he says, I need to worship God in some way for giving me the victory. And then, out of nowhere, comes this king, a good king, named Melchizedek. And he's also a priest because it says that he was a priest of God Most High. It doesn't say anything more than he was the king of Salem, which is a king of a city that means peace. And out of nowhere, this king comes and Abraham says, this is the one that I'm going to go to to worship God. This is the one I'm going to go to to give my offering. And so he goes to him. Melchizedek serves him with uh, bread and with wine. And then Abraham comes to him and he says, uh, I, I give you 10% of everything out of worship for this victory that you've given me. And just like that, Melchizedek is gone. A flash in the pan. That's it. That's all we know about him. Until a thousand years later, when King David brings up Melchizedek in Psalm 110, and you heard it before, that the Messiah would be a priest in the order of Melchizedek. So now that you've known about Melchizedek, you get to Hebrews, and way, way in the New Testament now, after Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and the writer of Hebrews is making a commentary on the greater, Jesus is the greater, everything of the Old Testament. Um, the writer of the Hebrews says, you've got to know about Melchizedek. Don't you guys know about Melchizedek? And you're almost scratching your head thinking to yourself, I don't know too much about Melchizedek. There's just these two references. But he, he goes into this kind of chapter 6 tirade after this that he says, you guys are spiritually immature if you can't pick up on this Melchizedek thing. So here we are today, and I would pray that when you get to heaven and somebody says to you, my name is Melchizedek, you don't say Melchizedek who? And somebody red-faced next to him says, you seriously don't know about Melchizedek? Did your pastor even care about making you spiritually mature? So here we go. Who was your pastor? Um, look, look at, look at uh, Melchizedek and what he's all about. Um, how is Jesus the high priest in the order of Melchizedek? Number one, Jesus is the high priest of high priests. And we talked about this comparison of the Old and the New Testament, but the imagery of the Old Testament is all about Jesus. It's kind of like, and you can tell where my brain is, looking at an ultrasound picture, which is the Old Testament, and you can't really understand what's going on there, and you need somebody else to point out where's the head and, and where's the toes and stuff like that. But you get to the New Testament, and at the, at, at the birth party, do you bring out the ultrasound pictures? <laughs> Not so much. You bring out the baby. The baby's here. And so when Jesus got here, he said shocking things to his people. Like, he read the scriptures, and then he said, these scriptures testify about me. And, he, and in another place, uh, when he was talking to his disciples after his resurrection on the road to Emmaus, he unfolded the scriptures for them so that they could see that he was all over them. And personally, that's one of the, one of the biggest faith-building and faith-affirming things in my life is to see the Old Testament doesn't just complement the New Testament, like they're nice books that are written next to each other, but they actually are a history that matches one another. And if you look into the Old Testament and you see the blood over the doorposts of, 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 the, of the Israelites in Egypt, and then you say, but wait a second, in the New Testament, there is blood that is shed, and that blood that goes over the doorpost of my heart, Jesus' blood, redeems me, you see that the ultrasound becomes clear. 
what this was all about all along. And you look in the Old Testament, you say, like last week in the sermon, there's a snake that's put up into the sky, and that bronze snake is something that you look to and live. And in the New Testament, Jesus says, just as that snake was put up in the desert, so the Son of Man, it becomes clear. And one of my favorites in Numbers 35, uh, there's this law that um, if you accidentally kill someone, like manslaughter, you could run to a city of refuge. And in that city of refuge, the avenger of blood that could rightfully kill you for that manslaughter of their family member couldn't touch you in that city of refuge as long as that high priest was alive there and, or that priest was alive there. And as, and as soon as that priest died, do you know what happened? You got freed from, from, from your manslaughter and you could go back to your territory and live again. And Jesus is saying, just like all of these pictures in the Old Testament are, are, are showing you, me, that the high priesthood, this, this priest, this, this, this representative from the people to God, I am that, that representative. I am the one that finally is put to death to set you free so that nobody could avenge your blood because you're forgiven. And so this is all over the place. He's the high priest of high priests. And when he made that final sacrifice on the cross, it was like that sprinkling of the blood on the day of atonement, except it was the sprinkling for the whole entire world. And he forgave by his own shedding of blood, not the shedding of blood of animals. And so he's the high priest of high priests, chosen by God. You saw that in the Psalms. He also, um, he's also uh, represents the people. And this is the other thing, is that he's a personal. Uh, I'm sorry, we're going to get to that one in a second. But he is also king and high priest. Look at number two. Jesus is both king and high priest. The thing about Melchizedek is that uh, he is something that really no other high priest was that we know of, is that he was both king and priest, king of Salem and priest of God Most High. That's not something you want, necessarily, and you don't want your pastor to also be your mayor, or your mayor to be your pastor. It has happened in history, and it hasn't always done well, but in Jesus and in Melchizedek, it's, it's the perfect mix. Jesus is both king and high priest in your life. He is both the representative of the people, the priest to God, and he's the representative of God, like a good king should be, a king that's just and right and fair. He represents God to the people, not that he is God. And so you get to, um, you get to understand that the one that rules your life is also the one that empathizes with you. A dentist uh, was known to be really rough with his hands, and he really had gone through school and went through all the motions and he worked in people's mouths, and people came away, and they kind of said, well, they got the work done, but man, was that uncomfortable. It was only until that dentist sat in the chair and had a root canal himself, and his work changed forever. He was gentle, and he was thinking about the person there and not just the work. And so when it says that Jesus empathizes with and that he learned suffering he came down and he sat in the chair. You know, when, and you see this, this king and this, this priest in the, same, in the same setting. Jesus' friend Lazarus dies and he goes to the grave, or he goes to the house first, and it seems like Martha is angry with him. And she says, Lord, if you had been here, you could have saved Lazarus and he wouldn't have died. And what does Jesus say to her back? He says, I am the resurrection and the life Whoever believes in me will never die, and Lazarus will live again. Jesus the King! But then he goes to the graveside, and 
And Mary's there, and what does she say? The same thing Martha says. She says, Jesus, if you would have been here, he, he wouldn't have died. You could have saved him. And what does Jesus do? Show me where the body is. He goes to the graveside, and what does he do? He just cries. Jesus the priest. Your priest. But your king. In the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is both king and priest, and he's learned to suffer. You heard it before, uh, reverent submission. He put himself through it. He learned obedience from what he suffered, and that really makes him the best high priest. And number three, your personal high priest. Here's Melchizedek, who comes out of nowhere. He comes out of nowhere, and the interesting thing is, is that the Old Testament priests in the Jewish tradition were very ethnocentric in this way is that the priest represented the people, and he represented all believers to Judaism. But you couldn't quite get in there like the Jews. You couldn't just be anybody and go up to God and, 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 and sprinkle blood. If you were a Gentile like many of us are here, a non-Jew, you could only make it into the outer court of the temple or the tabernacle. And, and if you're a woman, then you could make it a little farther. If you were a Jewish man, you could make it farther. And... If you were a Levite, you could make it further, but even then you couldn't just go in. You had to be a Jewish male Levite high priest to go all the way in. But Jesus comes along, or Melchizedek comes along, and you know what? He predates all of the Jews, because who is he meeting in Genesis 14? He's meeting Abraham, the father of all the Jews. And here we have a priest that is before all the other priests, a priest that we don't know where he comes from. We don't know what ethnicity perhaps he represents, but he's, he's there before Abraham. He's there before all of the Levites. And so he's a priest that you can say to yourself, I'm not a Jew, but I can understand that, that this, this person, I, I can identify with this person because he's not tied up in this priesthood of the Jewish people centered on a race, but he's actually the priest for all people. And so when you get to John chapter 8 and Jesus says to the, the, the church people, before Abraham was, I am, you have a high priest, regardless of your age, regardless of your gender, regardless of your ethnicity, your skin color, that you can go to and say, I, can, I, I, I know this, I know this one, and I can go to this one, because he represents the whole world, not just a single race. And you say to yourself, well, I'm from the Middle East, and my heritage is from there, and I, I can't identify with Jesus. He can't be my high priest because he's not in my family tradition. Not true. Jesus himself was kicked out of his own town, his own people. He went in to preach at a, a church in his own town, and do you know what they did to him? They kicked him out of his own church, and so you feel alienated, maybe, and you say, I could never identify. Yes, you can identify with this man because he suffered at the hands of his own people because he was ostracized from them. You can believe in him, and he knows what you're going through. When you say to your family, I, I want to learn more about this Jesus, even if it's not in your family tradition or culture, and you say, well, I can't identify with Jesus. He can't be my high priest because I'm not a church person. I don't have it all together. I don't have it all cleaned up. Not true. Jesus can be your high priest. Because most of the time, he was calling out the church people for their self-righteousness. And he loved calling people out of boats and out of trees 
and sitting in, the, in, 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 in fellowship with sinners because he came to seek and to save what? The lost, not the churchy people. He can be your high priest because he learned that, and God made him learn that. And he learned it so much, you know, it says that he was made perfect. And that's not talking about his morality. We know that the Son of God is perfect from the beginning of time. But through his experience, he became the most perfect human being and, and remained the most perfect human being because he did everything God asked him to do from the beginning of time at his work on earth all the way to the cross. You say, I can't identify with Jesus because I'm too young. I'm a teenager, and you don't know what teenagers are going through. Not true. Jesus was a teenager. He learned to say yes to mom and dad, even when mom and dad were wrong, (laughs) because he was obedient to them. Luke chapter 2, and he went home with them, and he was obedient to them, and he grew in favor of God and man. Even though he he was right, he made himself obedient as a child. And he can be your high priest, no matter your age. God doesn't understand. He doesn't answer my prayers. He could never be my high priest. Not true. He hears you. And just like Jesus cried out in the Garden of Gethsemane for for God to take away this cup that he was about to drink, do you know what the answer was back to him? No. And so he learned through his cries, through his tears, to be your best high priest. And he's your personal high priest, wherever you come from, whatever you've done. Jesus is your personal high priest, and finally, he's your timeless high priest. So every analogy breaks down somewhere. Both um, high priests in the Old Testament, they were sinners. But we get to the New Testament, and we learn that Jesus never sins, but he's perfect all the time. So that when he went to the cross, when he went into the Holy of Holies of the, uh, suspended between heaven and earth, and he sprinkled his own blood, he wasn't thinking about his own sins because he didn't have any sins. And that shows you that he was focused completely on what? your sins. He was completely focused on you and on rescuing you at that cross. He didn't have to atone for anything else in himself because although he took on the human condition, he beat the human condition and now he's your friend. The friend that pulls up his gene leg and says, I've become weak too. So what do you do with it? You do exactly what the writer of the Hebrews says. You obey. You live your life in the same obedience that that Jesus had towards his father that said, Father, I love you so much. This is how you can respond to your high priest. It says in, uh, it says earlier that he learned obedience from what he suffered and once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. That means that because he's given his life to you, your whole life now is this act of worship that you say, Jesus, you gave your life and you obeyed perfectly, and now I'm following you, and you are my best friend. You picked me up out of that, uh, out of that um, kiddie pool in the corner, and now I want to live life with you. So what does this mean? Melchizedek um, and Abram. Abram gives 10% of what, everything that he has to Melchizedek in an act of worship. But God comes to us and he says, I'm giving you 100% of myself. And so we're going to preach that from this pulpit every week. But we're also going to preach that what God has made inside of you is 100% of a response back to him that says, what can I do with my time? Have I, can I give more back to Jesus? No. 
But can I give everything about my being back to him? Yes, because there's a friendship, there's a relationship in my time. Um, can I love the way that Jesus loves? No, not all the way, but can I pour myself into an act of worship that loves other people? Maybe they're the marginalized people in my community. I can love them with that same love that, that isn't inward me looking, but that, that, that love that says to God, God, make me your instrument, appoint me. Yes, you can do that because Jesus is your high priest. And your money. God, you've given me these things in this world. We, I, we live in one of the richest nations on earth. God, what can I do with all of these gifts that I have in worship back to you? And when you do it, it's a perfect worship because it's the worship with the high priest that purifies your heart. My prayer is that you keep Jesus, your high priest, at the center of your obedience and that you don't forget about your obedience back to him because it's a real way not atoning for your sins, but it's a real way that you show God and you show Jesus that, that, that he is your best friend and that, that you're in it with him too amid all of your weaknesses. And when you fail and you fall short, return to your high priest because he, he's chosen by God for you to fit you just the right way in weakness. He, he represents you by putting your sins on the cross and thinking only of you and he relates to you in your weakness and in your struggle. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Jesus Christ, you're there, you are our heavenly and holy high priest in the order of Melchizedek and help these truths to sink into our hearts this week so that we can learn to worship you with true obedience as we follow you. Um, you take all of our weaknesses and you enter into them with your grace. So help us keep grace at the center of our lives and everything that we think and say and do. And thank you for being our high priest. Amen.